This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit kyber.org to download or purchase this book. The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained, 2010, Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England, narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Appendix B, Worship and Dominion. We are taught in Scripture by our Lord that those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. It is fundamentally important, therefore, that we understand the true nature of worship that God requires of us. In Hebrews, the two basic words for worship are shakah, which means to prostrate oneself, to humble oneself, and habad, which means to serve, to work for. Shakah is equivalent to the Greek word proskunio, translated as worship in John 4.23, and is a physical act of stooping or bowing down in humility. With reference to God, it is, of course, entirely worthless, unless it symbolizes a humble and willing submission to God and to His will. The term habad has a far wider scope in that it includes the whole of man's life and actions. It signifies the service that God requires of man. Significantly, this substantive, haboda, also means furniture. This may seem odd, but the logic of this is quite simple and instructive. Furniture serves a purpose, and that purpose is determined by the one who creates it. It is created entirely for the use and service of man. Furniture exists merely to serve man and his needs, and therefore it does not have a purpose outside of the will and control of the one who owns it or uses it. In just the same way, man was created to serve God according to his will. Man's life is embraced totally by God's sovereign will. No man has a legitimate purpose outside of God's design, and to turn one's back on God and and seek a life of autonomy, is to make oneself a purposeless being, without true meaning in life. It is to become the refuse of creation, and it is fitting that the eternal abode of those who seek such a life of autonomy is described in the New Testament as Gehenna, since Gehenna was a rubbish tip just outside Jerusalem where all kinds of refuse, including dead criminals and broken idols, was burned The word Gehenna is translated as hell in the authorised version. Man's legitimate purpose is entirely taken up with God's will and in the fulfilment of that purpose man serves or labours or worships by his service and labour the God who created him. Thus to deny God and his purpose for man is to make oneself the inhabitant of Gehenna. The nature of the worship that God demands of man is in the New Testament further spelt out by the Apostle Paul when he writes, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, some translations read spiritual, worship, Romans 12.1. The word translated service is here, latreia, which means first service and then divine service, or worship. It is this word that is used to translate the word habuda 
in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. Thus, the Apostle establishes the basic nature of worship by drawing attention to the fact that true worship is an intelligent, rational service to God by the whole man. This has significant implications. First, the basic character of worship is not experience. Neither Shacha nor Habad, nor their equivalents in the New Testament, refer to an experience or to a subjective emotional state of mind. Both refer to man's submission of himself to God, the former in the act of bowing down to God in adoration and humility as an expression of deference and submission to his lordship and sovereignty, the latter in a life of service and obedience to God. Worship is service, not experience. Second, worship embraces the whole of life. We are to render our bodies, that is to say our whole being, not just the mind or the spirit, a holy sacrifice to God in all things. The body is engaged in the totality of life. Thus, with everything we are and in everything we do and think, we are to serve God according to his will in whatever field of study we are engaged, whatever vocation we have, whatever we do in our leisure time, we are to serve God according to his will. And only as we do this are we rendering to God the true worship that he demands of us. By reducing the meaning of worship to what happens in church on Sunday, Christians have made the Christian religion irrelevant to life and, consequently, the church has become irrelevant as a cultural force in society. A concept of the faith that is essentially monastic has thus prevailed. Similarly, pietists see worship as something done by the inner man, whereas in the Bible, worship is something done by the whole man in the whole course of his life. It embraces the totality of his life and being in thought and in deed. Thus, third, church worship, or Sunday service, is only one aspect of the worship that God requires from his people, though an essential and vitally important one. In church, the people of God engage in corporate praise, prayer, thanksgiving, and receive teaching and instruction from the word of God. Also, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are received. All these are important elements in the Christian life but they do not constitute the whole of the worship that God requires of us, and when they exist merely by themselves as a show done for effect once a week, we have a clear indication in Scripture that God finds such lip service unacceptable. What we do in Sunday service, therefore, is real and valid only in the greater context of a life of worship, that is, of service to God. Fourth, we are told that the worship God requires of us must be a reasonable service. The word here translated as reasonable, logikos, comes from the same word group from which we get the English words logic and logical. This especially needs to be borne in mind today when the nature of worship is seen almost entirely as emotional in character and devoid of rational content. Such worship is not acceptable to God. We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, 
with all our soul and with all our mind. Matthew 22, verse 37. In other words, with the totality of our being. The whole nature and course of our lives, including corporate worship on Sundays, must be a rational service to God. Thus, to attempt to worship God in an unknown language, whether it be through participation in the Tridentine Mass or speaking in tongues, is a contradiction of the first and greatest commandment as expounded by our Lord. This does not mean that we should idolize the intellect, but neither are we to neglect it. Our intellect is God-given, and we are to use it to the best of our abilities, with all our might, in the service of God, just as we are to submit our emotional life to his service. Neither idolatry nor neglect is the correct approach to our minds as Christians. Christianity is not a heart religion. Neither is it a head religion. It is a whole man religion, which demands the total use of man's life and being in the service of God. Thus, to render a worship, whether in our daily lives or in a corporate or in corporate church services, that is not a rational, that is not rational, is to offer to God less than he demands of us. Fifth, the exercise of dominion in Christ, since it is essential to the fulfillment of man's creation mandate, and thus God's purpose in creating man, is an act of worship. We are called to dedicate our lives and vocations to God's service, in accordance with his revealed purpose for his creation. This is man's creation, or cultural mandate, given first in Genesis 1 verse 28, and renewed and restated by our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. This mandate is the command to exercise dominion in the name of the Lord, and thereby bring all things, every thought and practice of man, and every aspect of the world, and every aspect of the world he has been given to rule over, into subjection to Jesus Christ. The exercise of dominion in Christ is thus an essential element of the service that God requires of man. To fail to pursue this dominion in Christ is to fail to render to God the worship he requires of man by a life of total service to God in his revealed will for the creation. It is to fail to glorify God in the way that he demands and it is to render an inferior worship to the one who demands and rightfully claims our whole lives in his service. The exercise of dominion in Christ is therefore an important part of the worship that God demands of his people. Thus, in Psalm 149, worship and dominion are inextricably linked together. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishment upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honour have all the saints. Praise ye the Lord. Verses 5 to 9. According to the translators of the Geneva Bible, 1560, this psalm is an exhortation to the church to praise the Lord for his victory and conquest that he has given his saints against all man's power. 
Referring to verse 7, we are told that This is chiefly accomplished in the kingdom of Christ, when God's people, for just causes, execute God's judgment against his enemies. The Puritans spoke, of course, from within the context of a Christian civilization. They understood that the victory of the Christian church must lead to a Christian civilization and the establishing of God's justice throughout the earth. This is the future for which the Christian works in serving his Lord here on earth. The gospel must be preached throughout the whole world. The victory is certain, for God has given the nations to his Son as his inheritance. Psalm 2, verses 8 to 12 And of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Isaiah 9, verse 7 As God's people, we have a glorious part in God's plan for the creation, and we look forward to the victory which is his, and, through Christ, ours also, both here on earth and in the resurrection. Our participation in God's purpose for his creation, and thus in his victory and conquest over sin and evil, is the service that God requires of us, and it is the totality of that service which constitutes the true worship that God demands of his people. Sixth, this has far-reaching implications for education. We are taught in the scriptures that our children are to be brought up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6.4 Few Christians would doubt that this involves teaching our children to worship God according to his word. Our children must understand the nature of the worship that God requires of man if they are to grow in grace and faith. But many fail to realise that the worship demanded by God from his people is far more than corporate praise in the congregation on Sundays and the pursuit of a private devotional life. To worship God means to labour or to work for God and his purpose in the whole course of one's life. Unless we seek to serve God, to work for God in all that we do by pursuing the dominion that he requires of his people, we shall fail to worship God according to his word. Furthermore, if we fail to educate our children for dominion, we shall fail to educate them for worship in the fullest sense, and thus hinder them from coming to God in Christ. Luke 18 verse 16 The whole of man's life is to be a worship service to God, and therefore children must be educated to work for God, to labour as to the Lord in all things. Ephesians 6 verses 5 to 7 This necessitates an education based on godly learning and discipline in all things, all aspects of life, all academic disciplines, etc. A truly Christian education, therefore, is far broader than the traditional idea of religious education taught in most schools in our land. It is not a single subject dealing with a particular aspect of life, but embraces the whole of life, For in the whole course of our lives and in everything we do, we are to serve our work for God and thereby fulfill the purpose for which he created and redeemed us in Jesus Christ. Only as we thus labour for God in all things shall we worship God according to his word and therefore only as we educate our children accordingly 
shall we prepare them for a life of service and worship. The worship that God demands of his people requires the provision of a godly education for our children, that is, an education based on godly discipline and godly learning in all academic disciplines. The dominion to which we are called as God's people, and therefore the worship that we are to offer to our Redeemer, necessitates this process of godly learning and discipline, and to deny it to our children is to refuse to worship God according to his word, to hinder them from so doing also, and thus apostasy from the faith. This audio version of The Christian Philosophy of Education Explained has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio with lrnteach.com and narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.